0: Okay, so this week we have a double header, and the reason we have a double header is because we have to double up some Torah portions, so that we'll finish all the Torah portions on time for Simchat Torah, and this week we're going to read the the double portion of number one, Acha Remot. And uh, the second one is Kiddoshim. And we read it as one reading. In other words, we divide these two Torah portions into seven readings, not double, support. we don't double the readings, that means 14 readings, but in seven readings. And the fourth reading, we purposely started in the first Torah portion and finished in the second Torah portion, really turning them into one Torah portion. So this week's Torah portion, Acharei, it's called Acharei, which means after because the opening verse says, shares that God told Moses these commandments after the death of the two sons of Aaron, Nodov and Aviel, on the day of the inauguration. And what is this Torah portion all about? It's the first bulk of it is about Yom Kippur. So that you know, we read this Torah portion on Yom Kippur. This is the Torah portion we read on Yom Kippur. We read the first part by Shacharit, which tells us exactly what the Kohen Gadol, what the High Priest did in the Bet Migdash on Yom Kippur, on the Holy Day of Yom Kippur. And then the second part, we the closing portion, with the part of the first portion, we read by the afternoon of Yom Kippur. And that talks about all the forbidden um, sexual relationships, the incest and everything that's forbidden. And our sages say the reason why we do that. Why would we read that on Yom, on Yom Kippur? The first half makes sense. It's all about Yom Kippur. But why would we read the second half? And the answer is to tell us that on Yom Kippur, it isn't a time to hide from our sins in shame, but rather to acknowledge our sins and to ask forgiveness for our sins. So, you know, if we're going to be too embarrassed um, to to face our, our our darkest sins, then how will we ever... Um, receive atonement for them. You know, today I saw a a beautiful uh, quote, and it said like this, it said, forgive the younger you, accept the the present you, and build the future you. So there's never a time where we're so embarrassed that we can do Teshuvah for it. And that's why I Yom Kippur and in this Torah portion, coming straight from the laws of Yom Kippur, we go straight into the laws of incest. Now, also I want to share with you, when it comes to Yom Kippur, what we need to know is that there is no sin that is too big for God to forgive. And on the other hand, there is no sin that's too small that we should ask forgiveness for. So when we balance that out, we realize what the beauty of Yom Kippur is. Now, just to go through the Torah portion, the Torah portion tells us about how the, the, Yom, the Yom Kippur took place in the Beta Migdash. I'm not going to go through all of it. It's uh, detailed. I just want to share with you the highlights. So normally, as we studied at the end of the book of Exodus, when we are talking about the garments of the Kohen and of the Kohen Gadol, the regular priest and the high priest. So over there we learned that the high priest has eight different garments. He has the breastplate, he has the ephod apron, he has the meal apron, he has the hat, he has the pants, he has the um, belt, and all those eight different garments, he has the forehead uh, plate, all those garments are necessary. If he's missing any one of those garments, any one of the services he did was not kosher. It was rendered unfit. Now, when it came to Yom Kippur, he had a special four white garments made of linen. All of them were made of linen. And that was just the pants, the shirt, the hat, and the belt. Now, the reason why he did this so I want to first give you the halachic reason, and then I want to give you the mystical reason. The halachic reason is because we have a ruling, ein nasser sanegar. The prosecutor cannot be used as the defend as the defense. Therefore, because after the Jews received the Ten Commandments and the first sin we did was the sin of idolatry with the golden calf. Therefore, we do not use any gold in the service of the Holy Temple. There can be no gold in his clothing. And because from the eight garments, there was those that had gold in it, um, not just the golden um, uh, settings for the stones or the golden chains, but actually, for example, the apron, was made up of six different threads. Each one of them was made up of six threads and within each thread, there was a thread of gold. So being that he wore gold, he would not be able to use that on Yom Kippur for the Yom Kippur services because the prosecutor cannot become the defense. Now, just that you should understand, on Yom Kippur, there was two sets of services. There was the regular daily services, the lighting of the menorah, the bringing of the daily sacrifice. But then there was the special Yom Kippur services, the special sacrifices that were brought inside the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy, there was the the incense that went into the Holy of Holies. There were certain jobs that were done only because it's Yom Kippur. So every time the Kohen gadol would do a service that was a regular daily service, he would have to wear his regular eight garments. When he would do a service, which is specifically a Yom Kippur service, he would have to take off the eight garments and he would put on the four white linen garments. Now, every time he changed his garments, he had to go to the mikvah, which means that the Kohen gadol on Yom Kippur went five times To the mikveh because of the way he had to change back his clothes from the white to the gold, the gold to the white, the white to the gold. Every time he would change, he would have to go to the mikveh. Okay. Now the services of Yom Kippur was primarily there was one that was sent outside, and that was the Sa'ir that was sent to the rocky terrain and it was done outside and that's called se'ir lazazel in modern day hebrew they use that word lazazel as we would use the word uh h-e-l-l and you know in hebrew you tell someone Lech, you know go lazazel but that comes from this this concept that that se'ir that would be sent that animal would be sent there to that rocky terrain and there it would do its work for the atonement of the jewish people then there was a special sacrifice that the Kohen, the high priest, had to bring for himself. And he would pray over that and ask for forgiveness. And then there was a special sacrifice that was done for the tribe of the Kohanim to atone for any of the mistakes or the impurities that took place in the Holy Temple unintentionally. And then there was the sacrifice that was brought as an atonement for the entire Jewish people then there was the incense the incense were brought into the holy of holies it would fill the holy of holies with smoke he would leave it there he would go out and then later towards the end he would have to go back in to take it out now any high priest that was not worthy of being the high priest and being in the holy of holies would not make it out alive from the holy of holies so much so that they actually had a rope tied around his ankle that when he went into the holy of holies that rope would be outside in case that if he passed away they would be able to pull his body out without having to go into the holy of holies and and by the way there was a time the times that the talmud tells us that there was a time where there was corruption and the high priest was appointed by the romans and the people who wanted, the Kohen who wanted to be the high priest, would actually bribe the Roman authorities in order that they should be made a high priest, knowing that they would not make it out of the, of the Holy of Holies alive. And nevertheless, they wanted to have that moment of going in, even though they knew it would cost them their life. Now. I wanna share with you, I told you that I would give you the Kabbalistic and the halachic reason. I told you the halachic reason why he had to change his garments was because the other garments had gold, gold was the prosecutor, it was the first sin the Jewish people did, and therefore it couldn't be the defense on Yom Kippur. Now, I wanna just share with you, when we say that Yom Kippur is the atonement of the golden calf, I wanna just put things in perspective and draw for you the timeline of the first Yom Kippur in our history. So Moses, after we had the Ten Commandments, he was told by God to go up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He came down and he broke the tablets when he saw the golden calf. Then afterwards, he went back up to pray that God not annihilate the Jewish people for for committing this sin. Then he came back down, And then God told him, come back up and receive another set of tablets. You broke the first ones. If you do the mathematics from the sixth of Sivan, he went up the seventh of Sivan, count the 40 days, 40 days, 40 days, you're going to end up on the 10th of Tishrei, which is Yom Kippur, which means Yom Kippur is when he came back down with the tablets because he broke the tablets and he broke the tablets because of the golden calf, which means literally that the first Yom Kippur we ever experienced was the atonement for the golden calf. So, now you understand why it's such a big issue not to wear gold. I do want to share, you know, for women that aren't aware, um, some women are careful, they think you're not supposed to wear gold and Yom Kippur to jewelry. There is no such law. I mean, women do as you were taught by your parents, Um, I'm not going to get involved with that. I'm just sharing that there is no law that a woman is not allowed to wear gold jewelry on Yom Kippur. The gold is specifically for the high priest and specifically for the service of the Yom Kippur service. So even the high priest wore gold on Yom Kippur when he did the regular daily service. While I'm talking about some misconceptions, I also want to share some people have a misconception that it's forbidden to wear leather on Yom Kippur. That is not true. You are absolutely allowed to wear a leather belt. The only thing you're not allowed to wear leather is shoes. So the five things that we don't do on your kipris, is we can't eat or drink. We can't anoint ourselves with different type of oils. We can't have any marital relationships. And we can't wear leather shoes. Okay? So, and we can't, so those are the things, the eating, the drinking, the anointing ourselves, the having marital relationships, and wearing leather shoes. But you are allowed to wear a leather belt. Okay, now going back to what is the mystical insight of why the Kohen Gadol has to wear white linen garments when he does the Yom Kippur the the Yom Kippur services. So this comes from a teaching of the first Lubavitcher Rebbe in his book LeKote Torah. He quotes it from Rabbi Chaim Vital, who was a student of the Arizal, who quotes it from teachings in the Zohar. And he explains like this. On Yom Kippur, there is the mystical smoke of the incense that fills up the entire Holy of Holies. Now, the way you spell smoke in, in Hebrew is ayin, shin, nun. Now, ayin, shin, nun is the acronym for three words. Olam, shana, nefesh. World, year, soul. What that means is that it is the concept of place, space, world, the concept of time, which is year, shana, and the concept of soul, which is nefesh. Now, when you look at what took place on Yom Kippur, you had the oneness of those three categories. That was a time of the year where you went into the holiest of space, which is the holy of holies in the holy temple. And you did it on the holiest time of the year, which is the day of Yom Kippur. And who did it? The holiest soul, the high priest. So you had the unity of the essence unity of each category. The essence unity of space is the holy of holies. The essence, unity, and oneness of time is Yom Kippur, which is literally called Achat Bashana, one of the year. And the 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 oneness of the unity of the essence of the soul is the Kohen Gadol. So when the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur went into the Holy of Holies, you had the ultimate unity of the essence, oneness of the universe. Now, based on this, I wanna share with you what Kabbalah explains. Kabbalah explains that all other plants, you can have more than one, for example, in wheat, you can have more than one straw grow out of the same hole of the ground where the seed grew. When it comes to flax, linen, when it comes to flax, it's called bad. The reason why it's called bad is from the word badad, which means alone, the word levado, alone. Now, what happens is that flax is the concept of only one flax will grow out of a whole, so there is no multiplicity, there's only oneness. On top of that, that same teaching goes on to explain that the color white is the essence of all colors when it's not a compilation affected by other influences. So when you talk about white linen, you're talking about embracing in his garments this concept of an essence oneness. Now that is what Yom Kippur is all about. Let me elaborate for another moment. And then we'll move forward and and go quickly through the other Torah portion so we can talk about what I promised you all to talk about in the text message, which is about what does it mean to be holy. So Yom Kippur, we need to understand what does it mean that Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement? What, What does that mean? What is our job on Yom Kippur? So, of course, the job is to do teshuvah. Teshuvah means repentance. The real definition of the word teshuvah means to return. If you want to really get really detailed, the word teshuvah is tashuv hei, return to Hashem. A deeper message yet is that within us, there's a piece of Hashem, which is the letter hei from God's name. That's what our soul is. Teshuv hei bring the letter hey back to the other three letters of the tetragrammaton bring go back to god so the definition of teshuva really means to return it doesn't mean to bang away it doesn't mean to beat yourself up it doesn't mean to feel horrific no it just means to have enough remorse so as to remove any stains of pleasure that we had from sin It's all about these these different levels of affliction that we spoke about. They're not eating, they're not drinking, they're not anointing, they're not having marital relationships, not wearing leather shoes. It's all about breaking the ego because within us is a soul which is absolute pure, but it's imprisoned. And the only imprisonment that exists within us ourselves is ego. Ego is the prison. And when we're being egotistical, We're imprisoning our true self. That's what it's all about. So Tosh of means to return to God. What does that mean to return to God? What it means is that we too are the most complex of all beings. We have so many different levels to ourselves. We have thought, speech, and action. We have emotions. We have intellect we have the physical we have the spiritual each one of us each one of the parts of us is made up of a compilation of parts our brain we today know there isn't just one mind there's so many different complexities to the mind in kabbalah language we talk about the three intellects wisdom understanding knowledge within each and every one of them there's a complexity it's like an onion with layer upon layers upon layers and what we do is we confuse and we make complex the simplicity of who we are and the simplicity of the relationship we have with Hashem. And therefore, the more we can embrace simplicity, the more we will be in tune with doing teshuvah. So let's talk about the practicality of that. If we're going to sit on Yom Kippur and try to find loopholes that what we did wrong isn't so wrong, or it's only, Bibli- it's only rabbinically wrong, it's not biblically wrong. And even if it's biblically wrong, it was a case of an onus. It was as, as, as a mistake. I didn't. Meet- you keep on finding loopholes and different complexities to what we did rather than just turning to Hashem and saying, "God, you have created me." a complex being full of faults. And because of these faults, I sometimes slip, but I don't want to slip. I want to be the true me in the embrace of you. That's what Teshuvah is. So therefore, it's all about the white linen. It's all about shedding all the multitude of layers that we have that make our life so complex and create such inner strife and struggle between our mind and our heart, and this, the right brain and the left brain, and the kindness and the strictness, and all that complexity of emotions, which, which make things so difficult instead of being so simple. Now, the word simple, we use it as an insult. You know, from the four sons, when we talk about the simpleton, we're not being complimentary. So I want to share with you that in Hasidus, specifically in Chabad, when we want to talk about the word simple in its true, pure, complementary sense, we use the word sincerity. Sincerity is the simplicity of the heart. No negotiations, no games, just sincerity. That, when we can be and experience our sincere inner self, the oneness essence of who we are, that true inner child, which just has the truest sincerity, the truest purity. When a child laughs, it fully laughs. When a child cries, it fully cries. And it's not manipulating; it's just being sincere and raw. A yom kippur when we can reach the white linen part of our soul, the simple sincerity in its full rawness, then teshuva is the most natural flow. We just want to come back home to our Father in Heaven. Now, now that we understand that, we understand that the focus of Yom Kippur should not be on the shame of our sins, but on the purity of our soul and the unconditional love that exists between God and us. That is a true Yom Kippur. And when you have that true Yom Kippur, you automatically give a krechz. oi. why? Why did I desecrate this relationship? Why did I desecrate my own soul. God, please forgive me and allow me to come back home. That's Yom Kippur. We talk about the incest, and again, we go straight from Yom Kippur to incest for that concept that I spoke about. There is no Yom Kippur sin, which is too small to have to ask God for forgiveness, even if it was when someone spoke and we rolled our eyes. And that was disrespectful. Even that is something we do on Yom Kippur. And yet, on the other hand, even incest, even the most immoral thing we can do is not too big for us to say, yes, on Yom Kippur, I can ask forgiveness even for that sin. Okay. The next week's Torah portion, Parshas Kedoshim. So I want to share with you That in the five books of Moses, there is a 613 commandments. However, they are not equally sprinkled throughout the entire Torah. In the book of Genesis, we have very few mitzvot. We have the mitzvah being fruitful and multiply. We have over there a mitzvah which is, anyway, repeated again in Leviticus, like my class last week about the circumcision. We have over there the mitzvah visiting the sick. God visited Abraham after his surgery. We have the mitzvah of clothing the poor. God put garments on Adam. We have the mitzvah of feeding the poor. We have Abraham always giving food. But Really, Genesis doesn't have a lot of mitzvot. We have one mitzvot over there also because of Jacob with his sciatica nerve, but we don't really have a bulk of the mitzvot. When you begin in the book of Exodus, you don't either have that many mitzvot. We're more learning about the story. All of a sudden, by the end of the story, before God takes the Jews out of Egypt, we come across some mitzvot. We come across the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh, the new moon. We come across the mitzvah of the Passover sacrifice. We come over the mitzvahs of Pesach, the Matzah and the Moror. Then we go into the Torah portion of Yitro. In Yitro, we don't either have that many mitzvot. We have the 10 commandments. The, The next Torah portion, Mishpatim, handles a huge amount of civil laws. The laws of damages, the laws of, of, um, of watching, guardianship. And then we go into the laws of building the tabernacle. And then in the book of Leviticus, we start having in numbers, larger amounts of mitzvot in Torah portions, the sacrifices, the details of the sacrifices. In this second Torah portion called Kedoshim, we have a huge amount I believe this may even be the Torah portion that has the most mitzvot in it. In one verse, you can have three different mitzvot. Giving a class on this, week's to- on this Torah portion, if you want to have a class where we go over every single mitzvah verse by verse, it's a long, a long and detailed class. But you have over here all the different Torah portions. Now, I want to share with you that, you know, like I said, the Torah portion is huge. It's very huge in in its wealth of mitzvot. So I'm going to focus on the remainder time of this class on the opening mitzvah. The opening mitzvah is, and I will read it to you, God tells Moses, verse one, God spoke to Moses saying, verse two, speak to the children of the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, Kidoshim you, you shall be holy, ki ani for I, God your Lord, is holy. Now, a lot of times when we study Torah, we study it on an abstract spiritual level. When you hear the word holy, what does the word holy even mean? What makes something holy? So we have holiness, like for example, in, in space, in, we have on the Temple Mount, we have the different levels of holiness until we speak about the holy of the holies, so much so that if you go in there impure, it's punishable by death. So what makes that Holy. And what makes it holy is the presence of God. So when we talk about something or someone being holy, what we're talking about is that he or she or it is a vessel for godliness. For example, you take the same cow, you take the same cow hide, and you turn it into the same letter, leather. One piece you'll make a belt and a pair of shoes. One piece, you'll make a mezuzah. One piece, you'll make a jacket. One piece, you'll make a sefer Torah. So that same hide from the same animal, which was tanned into the same leather. But now we have a difference. Shoes are not an open vessel to godliness. A sefer Torah, when you look at a sefer Torah, you don't even look at the fact that there is a hide there, parchment. Because when you think of a Sefer Torah, you right away think of the Word of God. So when we say something is holy, what we mean is that it physically became transparent to the divinity that lies within it. Excuse me, i.e. a of fill in a mezuzah, a synagogue, there's laws of the holiness of synagogue, what you're allowed to do in a synagogue, what you're not allowed to do in a synagogue, and all of this boils down to why? Because it is a transparent vessel to God and godliness. Okay, then let's move up the conversation or not. It says, for I am holy. What does it mean that God is holy? What does the word holy mean? So when we say that it's a mitzvah to be holy, anytime we have a mitzvah, we must have a clear pragmatic definition in action, quality, and quantity. For example, Paisach, there's a mitzvah to eat matzah. So we know that there is a halachic definition to what a matzah is. There's also a halachic definition to how much matzah you have to eat in order to it, for it to be considered that you did the mitzvah of eating matzah. Now, if you're going to eat by the Seder egg matzah, which is kosher for Passover, but you didn't do the mitzvah of eating matzah, because matzah has to be a water matzah, just water and flour. If you ate one bite of the matzah, you didn't do the mitzvah, because the mitzvah has to have a certain amount. It's called the kazayis. It has the mass of the size of an olive, and today they know exactly how many grams that is. Now, When it says thou shalt be holy, we also have to have a definition. What is the definition of the word holy? And what is the quantity of being holy that I can say I fulfill the mitzvah that God has commanded me, thou shalt be holy? What does that mean? So I'm just giving you this introduction to let you know that in this conversation, it's not going to help if we close our eyes and shake our head and hand, oi, holy, holy, no. Is a mitzvah be holy? I need to know what that means. So Rashi gives an interpretation saying that whenever the Torah speaks about being holy, it means to separate ourselves from immoral sexual acts. Okay. Now we have a definition. Don't commit an immoral sexual act. So when you're tempted to do so and you don't do it, you have fulfilled the mitzvah of being holy. Ramban. Most people know Rambam, Maimonides, Rab Moshe ben Maimon. I'm talking to you now about Ramban, Nachmanides, Rab Moshe ben Nachman. And they had. Almost similar lives. They both were Kabbalists, they were both um, psychologists, they were both doctors, Um, they were both Jewish codifiers, they were both Kabbalists. Ramban Nachmanides has a commentary on the Torah. And when it comes to the commentary on this word over here, Kedoshim, he refers to a teaching that comes from the Talmud in Tractic Yivamot, I believe. It's page 20, side A, if I remember correctly. And over there, it says over there, the words, Kaddish atzmecha b'muterloch. Sanctify yourself in that which is permissible to you. What does that mean? What is he saying? What he's saying is, I'm going to quote to you the way Chassidim used to say it. What's forbidden is forbidden. End the story. What's permissible is not necessary. In other words, to eat lobster and pork, out of the question. To eat steak, a cow steak, which is kosher, not necessary. Eat what you have to. Don't indulge, don't salivate. Sidney used to say, you wanna eat, eat, but don't suck on the bones, so to speak. Don't don't salivate it. "Oh, Oh, is this a good steak? Oh, is this amazing? You don't need to do that. And don't overeat. Eat what's necessary in a healthy format. Know why you're eating. And that's it. That means that both Nachmanides and Rashi, they formulate their interpretation and definition of the verse, you shall be holy, built on the definition of the Hebrew word kadosh, which means holy. Now in order to understand what the word kadosh means, I'm gonna ask you a simple question. When you stand on the chuppah, you hear the groom puts the ring onto the finger of the bride, and he says these words. You are hereby mikudeshet unto me, by this ring, according to the laws of Moses and our sages. Now, when you look at what the definition of the word Mikudeshet is, so over there, most people will translate it loosely as betrothed, Because the Kiddushin is where the groom bethrows the bride. However, what does the word Mikudeshet really mean? It comes from the word Kodesh. Which then would mean that the groom is telling the bride, You are hereby sanctified, you are holy unto me. What, 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 what holy? What, how does he make her holy? And why does she need him to make her holy? So, the answer that's given is that the real definition of kadosh, the way our commentaries in the Torah and in the Talmud and in Jewish law define it, it comes from the word hafrasha the havdalah separated hence you now understand that rashi and ramban they both in their commentary are explaining that the mitzvah of being holy is to separate to refrain from to abstain from rashi focuses specifically on any immoral sexual behavior Nachmanri refers to anything which is permissible but not necessary. Don't indulge. Okay. Now we're having now a clearer understanding of the word kadosh. So now I want to take you to the question we asked. What does it mean that God is holy? In the book of Samuel, Shmuel Aleph, chapter 2, verse 2, we have the famous verse, Ein kadosh ka Hashem elokeinu. There is none as holy as God, our God. What does that mean in light of what we just defined the word kadosh means? What does it mean? There is none separated like God? So to understand this, we look into the Talmud and the Talmud and Tractic Brachot on page 10, side A, it explains this verse. And it says as follows, On one hand, Our sages say that the way the soul fills the body is the way God fills the world. It actually says it in the reverse. The way God fills the world, the soul fills the body. And what we understand from here is that the way the soul is the life force of the body and it clothes itself within the body, so too does God is the soul of the universe and he gives life to the universe and he fills the universe. Hence, we have the word, and his glory fills. I, heaven and earth, fill, is what God says. So now we understand what that verse in Samuel the prophet is saying. He's marveling at, on one hand, God is everything and everything is God. On one hand, God fills and vivifies and connects with every creation as the soul fills the body, and nevertheless, God is not affected and separated from everything. The soul is affected by the body. Literally, the soul is affected by the body. When the body is not feeling good, it affects the soul. The Holy Magid, the Rabdov Beres Madris said, a small hole in the body is a big hole in the soul. And that's why it's so important we take care of our health. So you don't say that the soul is kadosh in the sense that it's not affected and separated from the body. Yet in God's relationship to the universe, even though God is the soul and life force and is consistently and continuously bringing everything into existence from naught to something, so the engagement that God has with his universe is real and deep. And here the prophet says, in Kadosh Kashem, And nevertheless, nothing that goes on in the universe affects God. Because God remains, while engaged, separated. There's different metaphors in Kabbalah and Hasidus to understand this. One of the ways to understand this is, they say that the sun, when it shines, it makes no difference how many windows you have in your wall. It makes no difference on where it's shining. It shines. Whatever's open to receive it, receives it. So if everyone has their curtains open, it isn't more strenuous and exhaustive on the sun. If everyone has their window shades closed, it doesn't make it easier on the sun. That relationship between the sun shining and what it's shining on is in a way that what it's shining on has no effect on the ray of sun in some place in Kabbalah Chassidus, it wants to explain that that is what it means, en kadosh ka Hashem. God gives life to everything and nothing affects Him. However, obviously, it, that metaphor is limited because the sun is not the soul of the universe. It's not the soul of my room in which it's shining into. Right? If I close the window, my room doesn't die. With God, God's relationship is not just shining from heaven, he's in everything. And nevertheless, the prophet marvels at the magnitude that in Kadosh ka Hashem, that Hashem, everything is he and he is everything, and everything lives from him, and he yet remains separated and unaffected by everything. Now that we understand this word of Kadosh we can have a much richer understanding in what the the verse is telling us, you shall be holy for I, God, your God, am holy. And I want to share with you how I understand this. On one hand, there are certain things that are absolutely unnecessary. So not everything we can do, we should do. And I don't mean that just biologically, legally, I mean that also biblically. Not everything that Hashem says we could do, we should do, or we should do it in indulgence. So, the things that we don't have to do, the verse is simple. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. Yeah, you could, but just don't. It's not going to make a better person out of you. It's not going to help you grow spiritually. It's not going to help you in your relationship to God and in who you want to be. So just don't do it, even though God said you could. You don't have to have a three-quarter inch, medium rear steak every night. You just don't have to, even though you're allowed to. So those are the things where we say, just put the cork in the jug. Don't do it. It's zero tolerance. Just don't do it. However, there are things that we have to do in order to live, in order to survive, in order to be productive. Hey, just, just an example, right? We know today that if we don't do exercise at some level, it's going to harm our, pro- to our, our productivity and our spirituality. It's just that simple. Doing exercise is something we have to do. Again, in moderation. I'm not talking about spending a 30 your day in the gym, but we do have to walk every day. We do have to do some type of exercise. We should be doing some type of meditation because it's important to our productivity. So over here, I can not see the verse is saying completely separate yourself from it. So what is the verse telling me? when it's telling me about the things that I have to engage, I can't separate myself from. So then what is the verse telling me, be holy? So if you take Rashi and the Ramban's perspective, it's saying, back off of it, okay. But then the things that we can't back off, and we shouldn't back off, where and how am I holy? So to understand this, I want to share with you a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. It says, There where a person's thoughts are, there he or she is. Simply speaking, what do we learn out from this? What we learn out that just because you have to take the train every day to work, or the bus, or you have to take a flight, it doesn't mean that you have to be on the plane have to be on the train, or have to be on the in the car, in essence. It means I physically have to be there. But what happens if while I'm on the, the car, plane, or train, I have my iPod, and I have my ears plugged in, and I'm listening to a Shi'ur Torah, what happens if I bring along a little Gemara, Tanya, Tehillim, so then ultimately speaking, I'm physically on the train, but the Baal Shem Tov tells me that I'm not on the train. I am in a total different place. So too, I mean on a practical level. I can be sitting in my office, looking at the picture of my children, of the one I love, And even though I'm here in my office being mind boggled with with Excel spreadsheets and typing and laying out emails and, 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 and preparing programs, I take a moment where I'm not in my office. I'm actually with the ones I love. So that power of being somewhere else than where you are is a concept of being separated. What does that mean? What that means is that the verse says, Ma'ase yadecha, the words of the work of your hands. And our sages tell us you don't need to have your mind and heart. When you're doing something mechanical, when I'm doing a mailer, I don't have to have my mind in every single paper I put into an envelope. I can be somewhere else. I can be going over a class I have to give. I can be going over a class I received. I can be going over someone who told me that someone they love, a family member is in the hospital going through a hard time, and I can be saying words of Tehillim. So in other words, the word separation also can mean metaphysically that I'm not completely emotionally and intellectually indulging in that which i am doing i am doing what i'm doing not more not less but where is my mind and heart i want to take it up one more level everything has a means and an ends and there's a means to the ends and the reason why we do the means is for the ends now it's true when you live a conscious life then the means itself is also an ends because the journey is part of the experience. So if you can miraculously transport me to the ends, that would be denying me a whole experience. So the journey, the meanings, the means, the journey itself is also important. But in the bigger picture, there's a means for an ends. And the question is, do I identify what is my means and what is my ends? Let's be practical about this. Do I work six days a week so that Shabbat can be a rich, beautiful, peace of mind, broad Shabbat? Or do I rest on Shabbat because Monday I gotta be fresh in my office? What's the means and what's the ends? Let's take it a step further. Why do I do Torah mitzvot? Do I do Torah and mitzvot because if I do it, then God will bless me that I will be rich and successful? Or am I working to be rich so that I can serve God with a broad-mindedness and with greater wealth? What's the means and what's the ends? And this will carry through in everything I do. In everything I do, if I can always focus on the means and the ends and identify it and put them in the right order, then even while I'm going through the means, according to the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, my thoughts are in the end, so already I'm experiencing the end in the means. Now, if the ends is to be one with God, so then everything I'm doing is holy want to share with you the Talmud talks about Hillel and Shammai, two great sages, how a whole week they lived with Shabbat. If they were going through the market and they saw a beautiful big fish, they would buy it and say, this is for Shabbat. This is different how they did it. They both did it different ways. But the point is that all week they kept their eye out for how to make Shabbat special. When I'm going to the gym, Is it because I want to have the oohs and ahs of my muscles, I want to look good, or do I want to simply feel good so I have the strength and clarity of mind to serve in the capacity that I serve to God and to my fellow man? So now we're understanding when the word kadosh means separate, it also means to separate the levels. What part of me am I investing into this? Now, I want to share with you something. And with this, we'll finish. I'm sorry, my phone is, uh, the alarm's going off. I want to share with you something. Everything we do, everything we do has to have a goal. We want to be focused with everything we do. Does that mean I should always be stern, stressed, and ten- intense? No. But everything should enhance who we want to be. And therefore, when we talk about the Kaddish Atzmuchah Mutterlach, when we're talking about being holy, when we engage in physical stuff, you can tell in a person, The joy that they have, not only when they're on vacation, but the joy they have when they're preparing a meal. The joy they have when they set the table. The joy they have when they go to work. The joy they have when they're working. The joy they have when they're coming back from work. The joy they have when they take a shower the joy they have when they're taking their walk and they're working out. That joy, to quote the Talmud, when it asks a question, what is this joy all about? The answer is to live a joyous life is through living a holy life. Living a holy life means that I always know what is the means and what is the ends. And while I'm in the means, I'm already enjoying my focus and devotion to the ends. That is a marvelous concept. Now I'm gonna share with you what a saleswoman told me. A saleswoman was having a meeting with me about timesharing, a whole story you go to the Orlando, and if you're willing to give them, a, I think it's 60 minutes or 30 minutes of your day, they will provide you with the room because they want to be able to convince you to do timesharing. No, I'm sitting there. Those were my difficult years. I, I mean, time sharing was out of the question, timesharing. And, and <laughs> I mean, you know, having a roof over the head was, was difficult in those days. So the lady came over, and I said to her, listen you know and I know that you're not going to be getting me to buy any time sharing. It's just not possible, even if I wanted to. So maybe you can help me instead. So she said to me, you know what? I filled my quota. So yeah, what can I help you with? I said, share with me something. Every person in this room right now is here for the same reason that I am here. You guys sent out email blasts that spend two free nights in your hotel in Orlando, plus you're giving $100 towards the entrance fee of Disney World if we give you 30 minutes before we leave. So everyone here came here not to buy time sharing, but to take advantage of what you're offering. How do you guys survive? What, what are you doing? I mean, why are you guys not bankrupt? So she tells me, actually, go online, check out our company. You'll see we're on the stock market, and we're doing quite well. I said, I get it. Share with me how. So she said, well, you're asking me, how, you're asking me to teach her how to be a salesperson? I said, yeah. She says, what do you mean? You're a rabbi. Well, you don't need to be a salesperson. I, and I told her, you have no idea how much of a salesperson a rabbi has to be to get people to come to services, to come to classes. So she laughed, and she said, I'll tell you how we do it. She said, do you know why I agreed not to try to sell you? It's in my blood to try to sell, even someone who thinks for sure they're not going to buy. Do you know why I decided not to sell, not to try to sell you time-sharing? I said, no. She said, because I see how your kids are sitting on your lap. And then she told me like this, I don't sell time-sharing. I could never do that. Well, how am I going to sell you time-sharing? What I sell is family time. And then she tells me, she was a Southern girl. She tells me, "And you Jews are the worst. I said, what do you mean? Says, you Jews never take family time vacations. You guys are work, 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 always working, working, working. I, if I can get you to pay for two weeks for time sharing, you're not going to let that money go to waste. And then you're going to take a vacation with your family. So what I'm really selling you is, family time. And that's really important to me because I know how much you people need it. Wow. And she shared with me the secrets of salesmanship. The first thing is you have to know what the person needs. Don't try to sell them what they don't need. Sell them what they need. And she said, I'm not here selling you real estate in Paris. I'm selling you family time in Paris. You need that. I appreciated that. And then she went on to tell me some other stuff, but I'm gonna stop here. You see what she did? She all of a sudden reframed the means and the ends. Now, what's about me? What was I doing in Orlando? Was I doing in Orlando the same thing that she was thinking? Was I doing Orlando because it was an opportunity to be alone with my family? Was it about making sure that I get onto every ride and how do I sneak my way into Space Mountain without having to wait the hour and a half line? Or was it about what's the difference if I'm online or I'm not lying? I'm with my kids, we're joking, we're making fun of things, we're laughing, we're bringing back memories. What's the means and what's the ends? When we have that straight, we are being holy. We are separated from the ego self-centeredness of the I and we're in touch with the spirituality and the selflessness of doing things for the right conscious purpose. Hence, you now know what that magical mitzvah of being holy is all about. It just means Know the ends, know what's a means to an end, and don't get caught up in the means even while you're journeying through the means. Even while you're in the means, whistle while you work because it's all about the ends. Live in the ends. People, thank you. And that is the end of today's class.